Hello everybody and welcome back to yet another We Are UTL Paso program. Today's guest comes from the music department. I particularly like that department. And her name is Cherry Duke. She is the person in charge of opera on this campus and almost I would say in this city, but I don't know that for sure. We'll find out. <laughs> but anyway, Cherry accurate. Duke, welcome to We Are UTL Paso. Thank you so much, Keith. Okay, so what on earth were you doing when you were five, six, and seven that you might look back on and say, ah, that were the seeds of a career or a talent or whatever? Hmm. How'd you begin this career? Well, five, six, and seven. I don't know if that was the beginning of this career, but I remember being in first grade and wanting to be a poet or a painter. I knew at that young age that I wanted to be an artist of some kind, but I hadn't a clue about singing and music. My parents were in the church choir. So I had a clue, I suppose, but not in terms of it being a, a career for myself. Well, they always say that you're supposed to have a model somewhere that makes you it, at five and six. So did you know creative people, artists, poets? Because most kids at five don't. I, don't, I didn't know a poet. Um, my mother's very artistic, and she always took painting classes. But no, I don't believe I had a model that young. If I did, I don't remember, but later I did for sure. So when when did you begin to know that you had a career out there that if you worked hard and practiced hard, you'd get to be what you are? Well, I have to thank my middle school choir director, Kathy Childs. She heard me audition for the choir in sixth grade, and I had no intention of being in the seventh grade choir. I wanted to be in art class, and I was dead set on it. And she, But everyone in the sixth grade choir, which was what you did if you weren't a loser, apparently... <clears throat> Anyway, uh, everyone in the sixth grade choir had to audition for the seventh grade choir. That was middle school, big step up, you know. So she heard me, and she wanted me to be in the choir, and all my friends said, oh, we're going to be in the choir. You should be in the choir. So I did. Um, later, when I was in the choir, she took me and my parents aside and said, Cherry has a voice. You sh we have a voice teacher that comes to campus. I think she should take some lessons from, from this wonderful woman, Pam Cochran. My parents gratefully agreed and had the resources to do that at the time. So I started with lessons at age 13, which was remarkable. I mean, it's it, very few young singers get to start that early. So I feel very, very, very fortunate. And, and, and when you were getting these lessons, was there a trigger? After a year, you began to realize, gosh, you know, looking back at where I was two years ago, I think I do have a good voice and there may be a, a living out there. Not that living. didn't come until 16 or 17. Yeah. But what I did discover is my love of languages. I didn't get to take any foreign language classwork until high school, but I did get to sing my first song in Italian probably at 14 or so. And I just thought I was the coolest because I could sing in <laughs> well, Italian. Absolutely. Did you know what you were singing? Uh, well, one can look these things up, so I guess I did. Um, but I just remember, I, I've always had an affinity for languages. I love languages. I'm good at diction. I think it's fun. So, okay. And, and German too? German came later. I sang in German in high school at some point. I don't remember when my first French piece was. Ah, yes, I do. It was probably the Segadilla from Carmen, which I sang at least at age 18. Okay. I know I was singing Carmen. Uh, we'll the we'll come back to that because French. that's yeah. a particularly interesting piece. But what about English? I mean, most opera is not in English. <laughs> True, but one's so, not really singing opera in junior high and high school. I had plenty of English songs. Okay. Yeah. 
And musical theater, I loved musical theater, still do. Okay, so you must be involved, we'll come to it in a minute, but the, the uh, dinner theater here, yeah, uh, we, we go to that regularly. Terrific. Yeah, I, we like it very much. So you went to college, I, I went to college at Texas Women's University in Denton, Texas. Studying voice, studying I, music, or Yes, I got a degree both? in applied music, they called it, voice performance. And? And then I went to graduate school. To, 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 to further and deeper. Yeah, further and deeper, yeah. Typical, fairly typical path. Okay. But I went to uh, I went to Connecticut for graduate school because I wanted to be near New York, but I wasn't quite brave enough yet to go to New York. Not to mention New York was so beastly expensive, and it still is. Yeah. More than ever. <laughs> and so, in graduate school, did you have to have a thesis? No, um, I got a degree that's called an artist diploma mm-hmm. because I want I really wanted to focus on performing, and so this was a performance oriented program and um, not as rigorous as a, a standard master's degree in terms of the academic academic requirements. So I performed a lot with Connecticut Opera. We did a lot of uh, outreach programs, singing um, Little Red Riding Hood, A Mall in the Night Visitors, and a little program called Opera 101 and a Half for (laughs) (laughs) elementary schools and other places um, all around the state of Connecticut. As well, I, I did performances, of course, at the university, which was the University of Hartford, the Hart School of Music. I, I, I remember seeing on the TV sometimes that you'll, you'll be in an environment of a city, maybe on the railway station or something, and then people wander up, and all of a sudden you realize it's a performance. That oh, they the go- flash mob. <laughs> yes. Yes. Is that something you've participated in? Because it looks totally exciting. I don't think I've ever been in a flash mob. El Paso Opera, which I'm artistic associate for, does um, programs in Madeline Park and all the other parks around the city, and that's called curbside opera. But that's not a flash mob. I do encourage you all to go to curbside opera, however. It's free and lots of fun. What was your first sort of big solo part when you got your degrees and you were out there freelancing? And My first big solo part was before I got my undergraduate degree. Wow. And that was Hansel in Hansel and Gretel. With the Denton Light Opera Company, they started this program where they were going to do Hansel and Gretel at Christmas time annually. I'm not even sure if it was planned to be annually in the beginning, but I auditioned and I got the role of Hansel at age 20 and had the best time doing Hansel and Gretel, which is an opera by Engelbert Humperdinck, not the pop singer from the 70s, but the uh, romantic German composer. We did it in English. It was maybe slightly truncated, but with full orchestra. And we did it again the following year, and then it became my first um, professional role with Virginia Opera. I did it for, um, again, educational outreach. We went to eight elementary schools a week doing a 45-minute version of Hansel and Gretel. That's a lot of work. Yeah. And then I did it again with New Orleans Opera, the Metro Pelican Opera, (laughs) (laughs) eight shows a week for about three weeks. And so, I mean, it's the same piece each week, each, each day, mm-hmm. you know, or otherwise mm-hmm. you'd go, well, you couldn't do it probably. How long does it take you to prepare for a part? Depends on the part. I mean, if you're going to, if it's an ideal, in an ideal world, at least, at least four to six months, but some parts might take longer. And I have prepared parts in a, a few days or a few weeks. I don't recommend it. Four to six months is an extraordinarily long time. Yes. But the point Opera is, is once extraordinarily you... hard. Yes, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll agree with you. But, I mean, the point that I'm trying to get at is that once you've prepared, then the next time you do that, 
two years later. It comes back much quicker than another sure. four to six months. Right. Sure. Unless it's in a different translation. I've done Hansel and Gretel in six different English translations. What's the difference between them? I've never thought about that, but this is interesting. Why does the fifth person want another translation into English when there's four reasonably good ones there already? I, I, everybody thinks they can improve upon it, I guess, or trying to make it more modern. Or... Well, it's like the Bible, you know, the King's James, and then sure. you know, they modify it as he goes along. That's as good a metaphor as any. Do you yeah. have a particularly fine translation that you like? I couldn't choose between them at this point. Gosh, pr I probably would have to say the one that I did with El Paso Opera in the train station a couple of years ago, but I'd have to look at it to remember which one it is. That's interesting. I never thought about this. You know, you tend to think there's an opera, there are the words, you translate them. One translation should be sufficient, but it's not. No. Well, the original language, of course, is in yeah. German, but um, nobody does Hansel and Gretel in German in this country unless it's the Met. Uh-huh. And why just them? Um, Preparation time? You know, there used to be a tradition of opera always being performed in the vernacular of the region. And when you're dealing with a, an opera that subject matter is primarily for kids, you know, it's a children's fairy tale, Hansel and Gretel, you want to be sure that the audience has an immediacy with the story. And you don't want them having to be looking up at the translations above the screen and then down at the actors and then up at the translations and down at the actors. Right. I mean, that's not ideal really any time, but um, for kids' opera in particular. Not that Hansel and Gretel is only for children. There are plenty of adults who enjoy right. And it comes that. a time when you're, you're in there to listen to the music and the, the singing and the voice, and you don't really care the precise words that they're saying because you've got the idea of the plot anyway. Right? I mean, Probably. is that unfair? Because, I mean, that's the way I go to an opera. Everyone's different. Except the ones I really know. Yeah. But, you know, we're in a different time now. I mean, it used to be that everyone went to the opera for that reason. They wanted to hear the great voices and listen to the beautiful music. And the story is the same story that you read in that Harlequin romance novel last week or whatever. Yeah. But today's audiences are expecting uh, more realism. I think, and they're expecting um, to be surprised. And frankly, there's fewer people that are familiar with their traditional operas. I mean, that surprises me to be surprised, right? Why I don't think I ever go to a play to be surprised by the version as opposed to what's in the play. But you might go to a play to see the, the brand new play that's just been written. Oh, that's a different issue though, right? I mean, who's going to go to Carmen for a surprise? She dies, you know. We, we <laughs> uh, it's different in Europe, for sure. In Europe, people have been, opera is considered such a uh, normal, everyday part of the culture that in Germany, when people go to the opera, yeah, they want to see what is this director going to do with the story this time? How is it going to be made different, unique? How is it going to comment on today's society or just... Um, break our expectations and this give is, us something you're, new. You're exposing all my ignorance because I wouldn't have understood that. I understand different sets, Zeffirelli sets versus somebody else's sets. But to make comment on where we are today, so, I mean, do you ever perform or think it's a good idea to perform opera in just regular street clothes? If you're going to sure. do Carmen, I mean... Depends on the concept. 
So? So, Carmen, the original opera was written in, I should know this number, but I don't, 1876, something like that, yeah. <laughs> and it was based on, a, on an earlier story, so you could reasonably set the opera Carmen in the mid to early 1800s. You could even go farther back if you wanted. But today's audiences uh, could easily see a Carmen that was set in the 1930s or maybe set in current day Juarez. Why not? That that's why not. Why not indeed? Uh, so why take... that depend that would determine the costumes? Yeah, it was written by a Frenchman too. Yes, George so, Bizet. Yeah, uh-huh. right. I mean, but the actual story was it not? Yeah, the 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 not the novella. Yeah, uh, was by Prosper Merimé, also okay. a Frenchman, but it's a Spanish topic. Yeah, Spanish topics were very popular in that that time in Europe. You're listening to We Are UT El Paso. My name's Keith Pannell. I'm here with Professor Cherry Duke. She's the opera lady for this university. Life is a certainty. Death is a doubt. Men may be dead while Okay, welcome back to We Are UTL Paso. Our guest this week is Dr. Sherry Duke. She is in the music department, and we've been talking about her sort of discovery that she had a voice and soloed, well, not soloed, but took the major role at the age of 20. Do you have, at some stage, you can say, well, I've done that. Now there's another part that I want to play, as opposed to just taking whatever is on offer. I've thought about becoming a jazz singer or switching to primarily musical theater many times in my life, but classical music keeps knocking at my door, as it were, and um, it's difficult to find the time for all the different interests that I have. So, I mean, jazz singer, have you ever tried and been yeah, in there? Yeah, a little bit. You yeah. can hear on my website, I, um, there's uh, me singing Santa Baby with a jazz band and a uh, a little bit of baby, it's cold outside. That wasn't particularly jazz, but it's it's uh-huh. close. And I did a performance at the Philanthropy Theater for um, EPSMF um, that was, well, I'll use a word my colleague hates. It was jazzy. <laughs> it wasn't exactly jazz, but it was in the vicinity, more more closely aligned with popular jazz than classical. So, I mean, one, one could expand upon a career. If you've got a voice, it seems you could... Do plays, theater. Do you interest in theater? Absolutely. I enjoyed doing Hello Dolly at the Dinner Theater, and that musical is unique in that the the spoken scenes between the songs are more numerous and more lengthy than most musical theater um, has. So it was a lot to memorize. But I was, I remember being on stage at one point and thinking to myself, "Oh, this is really fun." I'm in trouble (laughs) because I don't have the time with my current uh, obligations to the university to do as much of of that sort of thing as I'd like to. What are your obligations to the university? (laughs) That's an interesting question because you've got many titles. You're a director, a producer, a singer. So where do you say that a professor like yourself, what are your responsibilities? Uh, Sure. I teach Applied voice lessons, so I have anywhere from um, 7 to 12 private students 
um, private meeting one-on-one for an hour a week that I teach how to sing in the music department. And that's every week. And I also teach the opera workshop class, which meets for six hours a week. So if there's going to be an operatic production of any kind at UTEP, I'm the one who does it. And that has to be um, produced, taught, learned, designed, whatever, within my class time primarily. I mean, of course, I do an awful lot outside of my class time, but in terms of the students' preparation, um, our music students are so involved with so many things, and and their their classwork is very difficult, and many of them also have full-time jobs outside of school to pay the tuition. So we try not to rehearse them at nighttime, except for that critical one week prior to the performance. So that, that limits what we can do. So, I mean, in, in, in my area in science, we have teaching load credits, but the whole idea of spending 12 hours a week, one hour with each student, um, <laughs> we don't do that. Well, I we, don't we generally are... have 12. I usually have nine. But okay, but might... even, okay, so nine instead of 12 yeah. hours. But the point is that, that that's incredibly difficult in well, terms of teaching loads? Yeah, teaching loads. How do you is that twelve teaching loads or is that just one? My teaching load officially is twelve of those units yeah. that they talk about. People yes. who don't know how the academic system works will might not follow follow us here, but don't worry about it. I get 0.67 credits or units per one hour student. So even though I teach nine students at an hour a week, I don't get nine credits for that. I mean, that takes us to a different part, but this is a program about the university. It seems to me that that's unfair compared to what somebody like myself or anybody in the sciences, etc., teaches, right? We get three-hour credits for going in once an hour. I think it's all about economics, What's- you know, Music is not intrinsically profitable. Excuse me. Classical music, art music, is not intrinsically profitable. And one teacher teaching one student is not profitable for the university. Right. If one teacher is teaching a class of 15, 30, 60, or 100 students, of course, that is more profitable, right? So I think that is, I think it's simply the university's systems, and I don't mean UTEP specifically, but no, no, any no. university system's way of dealing with this very inefficient model of one teacher, one student for an hour a week times. People time. over in your part of the campus must get really quite teed off with having to recognize this over and over again and the profitability, as you put it. But a liberal arts university in a city like El Paso, particularly in El Paso, your whole program over there in music is key to almost, from my perspective, the viability of the city. Right? Wow. I love hearing you say that. Well, no, but I mean, that, that's, that's the truth. I mean, you think about all the bits and pieces that go on in daily life, and then you want to go out to the theater, you go to the concerts. The university here in El Paso is key to so much of that. Yeah. And so many of the musicians and the music educators in this city got their degree here at UTEP. People, uh, you know, people around the the world, maybe maybe I should just limit it to the United States. They don't always 
appreciate how critical music and art in general is to their lives. Oh, it's just in the background, but it really shapes so much of what we do. And, you know, whether or and not the university you like, here is yeah. the, the entry to that predominantly. Yeah. I wish, wish, wish that we had more students who are not music majors who would come and, and partake in the musical offerings, whether as an audience member or being a member of an ensemble, had just putting this out there, you do not have to be a music major to participate in the marching band or the university chorus or even opera workshop. There's a, we have a, a number of ensembles. I'm not listing nearly all of them, but we have early music, we have world music. We have so, so many So how, how would things. they participate if they don't play anything? Well, you have to play something, okay, good, but you don't okay. have to be majoring in it. It doesn't have to be your principal area of study. In fact, I, I, have, um, I have a music minor who is a mechanical engineering major. He's taking private lessons with me. We have um, two or three engineering majors in the, in the audition-only concert chorale. And we just graduated two pre-med majors that were in the concert chorale, and we're both top 10 seniors, but they were music minors and were in... Uh, in the opera that we just did, Luisa Fernanda, last April? When I see a new student that wants to do research with me, uh, well, it's a bit long story, but I like people who play music mm -hmm. because they have that discipline. Yes. And, and that's what science is a lot about. Yes. I mean, you've got to have the discipline and a long-term view. Uh, there's one gentleman who came to visit me many years ago, said, Keith, I'd like to, because he knew me, from reputation, I'd like to work in your group for a year or so. He's from Germany. I said, I don't have any funds at the moment that I want to free up. I said, but let's chat. We, we talked about things. He was in Germany. I'm from England, so we had a lot in common. And then he let on that he was a cello player in the local symphony. Oh. <laughs> and within five minutes, we'd agreed on a deal because the discipline the discipline that comes with playing translates so well to other areas too, but science in particular, at least I think so. You know, I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, the soft skills, as it were, that most, most corporations are looking for, that Google says it's looking for in new employees, the soft skills like communication and discipline and diplomacy and being able to stand up in front of a room and talk to people, on and on and on. Those are the kinds of things you get from a liberal arts education or specifically an arts education like music. You know, I lived in New York City for 20 plus years and in the beginning of my time there, I, like most opera singers that I knew and most actors, frankly, too, I was a temporary worker in corporations. I worked for um, investment banks. I worked for stock rating companies. I worked for law firms, all kinds of places like that. And everywhere I went, and this is not a story unique to me. This is a story I heard from my opera singer colleagues over and over again. Everywhere I went, they offered me a full-time job because they could see those skills on display from the get-go. And they could see that I actually cared about doing a good job. I could follow instructions. I could get it done quickly and well and, you know, be pleasant <laughs> and professional. What a thought. What a thought. But it was remarkable to me how few people who did have the full-time jobs didn't seem to care about those things or weren't capable of it. I don't know which. But 
opera singers were very valued temp workers in New York City. I imagine that's, they still that's are. The, what brought you to El Paso then in the end? Uh, my husband got a job offer here. He's a tenor, Brian Downen, and he a Metropolitan Opera tenor. Um, he and um, some of the faculty here had been acquainted for some time. He was a member of the Opera Bhutan contingency that went to the country of Bhutan. And they had an opening here that they thought he would be ideal for and offered him to be a visiting assistant professor. We had just um, gotten together. We talked about, do we want to move to El Paso for a year or maybe more? And I said, well, let's find out. Let's try it. So we did. And then less than a year later, there were other openings in the music department. So a job transpired just, for me. That's very nice. Yeah. And it's, it really worked out very well because he's on the tenure track. Yep. And I'm, I have a job that I think I'm uniquely qualified for. And Well, that's I perfect. Like and uh, El Paso and UT El Paso are very lucky to have you both. Not that I know your husband, but I mean... I know you now a little bit, so he must be very interesting also. I think so. We've got about four minutes to go. I'd just like to be able to uh, run out the program with some of your products, I guess. I'm not allowed to call them products. Some of your singing, anyway. Okay. But before we do that, are there any current programs that you think the audience might like to know about coming up in a short period ahead? On September... 18th, Sunday, I think it's a Sunday, September 18th at 2.30 in the afternoon, I'm giving a recital with my colleague, Dr. Ezekiel Meza, and the, it will be art songs by African-American and African diaspora composers, and that will be in Fox Fine Arts Recital Hall. I'd love for all of you to come. And Just go through that a minute. I, I'm going to take a little bit more of your time, I'm afraid. That sounds very creative, very interesting. Where did you find the stuff from? Well, there's actually so much material by this category of composer that is largely unknown, and yet there's so much wonderful material. Are we talking African-American or African? Af not African, but African-American and African diaspora. Now, that word diaspora was one I had to look up when I first heard it, and it means people who have African ancestry but who live all over the, all over the world now. Okay. For example, on my program, I have um, um, several African-American composers. That's pretty obvious, okay? Black composers living in the United States. But there's also um, an African-English composer. I'm sure you've heard of Samuel Coleridge Taylor. I have a Haitian composer, Carmen Bruar. Mm -hmm. And this is on 7, 18th of September? September 18th. Right, here on campus. Here on campus at the Fox Fine Arts Recital Hall. So you want to make sure folks out there listening to, to go to that. It's going to be a sellout audience now you've sort of broadcasted on the radio. <laughs> Our guest has been Cherry Duke from the music department, opera singer, and we're going to listen to her sing something from Carmen, the Habanera, and uh, we'll go from there.
You've been listening to We Are You, Te Paso. Our guest has been Cherry Duke from the music department. Thanks so much, Keith. It's been a pleasure. Take care and uh, see you next week. <laughs>